Welcome to the studio of Punching Sideways, Josh. Thanks for joining me. Welcome back, Melza. Thank you for having me join you. You pay the rent, but I'm I'm taking it as my own now. Yeah, you talk to the neighbours. <laughs> exactly. We've all, we've both got important jobs in this. Um, today, someone pretty interesting. I mean, that's my register on how we book guests now. Producer Mel picks interesting piece, people, and Rodney Claxton is um, has been ingrained in the funeral industry for a while. An important job. It's a very important job and I think that people maybe don't understand how important it is and it takes a certain type of person and it is a certain type of person. (laughs) The way that you've described him to me is, firstly, probably not the type of person you might expect to be coming in Mm -hmm. as a funeral industry professional, but also that he is really fun and entertaining to talk to and has some just crazy stories. Crazy stories. Just the same way that we talk about just walking down the street and saying hi to your mum. He's got some really <laughs> cool stories. So I just want to get him in here and start talking to him and um, get your ear holes open, guys, because this is going to be super interesting. And in your mouth hole, you could get a coffee from punchingsideways.com and you can support us by buying us one. That's yeah. ear holes and with mouth. Rodney and mouth holes with a coffee. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Welcome to Punching Sideways. I'm very excited to have Mr. Rodney Claxton here today. How you going, Rodney? I am fantastic today. Feeling pretty good. Just today? Well, no, yeah, today is spe- you know, today's a bit special. So first podcast, first time meeting Josh, second time meeting you, and that's what worries me just a little bit. <laughs> the first time I met you, well, you know, it was a great night. Yeah. It was a great night. I'm just loving there's been more sledging directed at us in the last five minutes than it has in the last five months. This, oh, is a, no. this is a good thing. <laughs> I know. It's great. Someone's come into our space. Like I would usually barrel into other people's space and just, just open up barrels. Pew, 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 pew. Don't know what's going on. <laughs> but anyway, the reason that I got you in here, because in that brief meeting that we had, Mr. Claxton, you're a very interesting character and you've done some cool stuff and... A lot of stuff that I don't know anything about and I don't think a lot of our listeners would have really delved into this industry. So you you started off in well, – the thing that interests me the most is you're a funeral director originally. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into that? Well, I started when I first left school as an apprentice chef and cooked for a number of years. So I think the connection to funeral directing was all about big fridges. <laughs> no, no, so... Just yeah. joking. No, just joking. Uh, Roddy, his heart beats a little quicker when he sees a big fridge. Yeah. Let, let alone... No, don't yeah. worry, don't worry. I'm going, not going there. But no, uh, no, so I actually grew up in a cemetery, in a crematorium. So my father managed a regional crematorium and cemetery. So as a child, our house was, was in the cemetery. And what actually happened is um, my parents actually had a, a holiday to, to the States. They went across to Vegas when we were just kids. And as a child, I may or may not have been a bit of a rat bag. And all my other siblings got to go to my grandparents' place. 
and my grandmother was quite clear, I'm taking all the children except for Rodney. So <laughs> I, then, I then actually stayed with a local funeral directory in Albury, so when I was about 14 or 15. And from that, I would actually go down and help him wash the hearse and trim the coffins and things like that. So living in a cemetery, obviously witnessing cremations and things like that at a very young age, being in a funeral home, it was like, well, this guy has the longest car, the biggest car, the shiniest car in town. It was something that, that interested me. And then I was too young to actually get into the funeral industry. So I went off, did an apprenticeship as a chef, travelled around Australia cooking for a little while. I actually met my wife in Cairns in 88 when I was cooking. So, And then when I got to that age around 21, 22, that was the age where funeral directors would let you, you know, work. Otherwise, it looks like you've got a 12-year-old kid on a very sombre moment type thing. Well, they shouldn't be sombre. Sometimes they should be, you know, like the most exciting and the most happiest days as, as well. So I um, started in 88 as a funeral director for a company in North Sydney and family-owned business, great, great people. And um, funeral, I was then a funeral director in Sydney for around 16 years. And, yeah, that was, that was you know, a great a great company to work for because it was a, a, a medium-sized company. So we did about 1,400 funerals a year, but we also had contracts for... That's heaps. Yeah, but when you've got, you know, yeah. five hearses and 20 staff and things like that, so, it, it, you know, some days you, you know, if you had a funeral service that ran really late, you'd be, you'd turn up to the next funeral service looking like a... You know, like absolutely nothing's happened, but un- underneath, you know, like it's a duck on water just trying to get there. And, and But then you have to then maintain that same quality of service that that family believes or not that that family deserves. But then, you know, because of the size of the funeral home, we had contracts with um, a lot of embassies. So we would do repatriations of bodies overseas. So, you know, a lot of Japanese people, a lot of Chinese people and a lot of Irish people would come over and have a swim at Bondi and drown. You know, this is going back in the 80s. Or they, you know, they, they came from countries where they just couldn't swim. So we obviously did a lot of repatriation back to, to other company, um, countries. We had a coroner's contract. So basically, if anybody, if a death had to be reported to a coroner, if it was a murder or a suicide or if it was a, a death that didn't fall within the parameters that a doctor could sign the death certificate, the person would have to be um, taken to the coroner's office. The examination would take place and then the funeral would take place after that. So... That led on to, in the early 90s, I set up a company in Sydney, which was one of the first of going in and cleaning up after homicides and suicides and things like that as well. So, like I, Is that crime scene cleaner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> wow. be, before crime scene cleaner was a television show and things like that. So yeah. um, I was doing that in Sydney and literally that was after hours. So there was a, a situation that we had been to on the northern beaches and... Um, Unfortunately, there had been a, a double murder and it was committed by a, a family member. So the, the bodies were taken to the, to the morgue and uh, so then the family had, was still there and had contracted my services to come in and assist with cleaning up. And these were murders that were committed by, by shooting, so it wasn't terribly ple- pleasant. Wow. Uh, so, but then I was there in this house by myself it was about two o'clock in the morning. I'm still cleaning this. But then I, I realised that the police officer said, oh, by the way, we actually haven't found the perpetrator of this <laughs> who actually lived in that house. I've got, I've turned white, <laughs> got the ships. I thought, screw this, I'm out of here. So locked up the place, took the police, took the keys back down to the police station, said, I'll be back when it's daylight. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, wow. yeah. so how old were you at this point? Uh, probably 
22, 23. So you're still around that same age. Yeah. And you're in that kind of situation. Yeah. Well, because you're already been at the crime scene and, and seen and witnessed it, um, going back to, you know, like it would be totally different if, if you weren't in the industry and you walked through that door and saw some of the things that, that we, would, we would witness. But I'm extremely lucky that I've seen some people in the industry that have been um, hit by th- post-traumatic stress, but I'm, I'm fortunate that it's not something that's in my makeup as such. So, you know, I was able to do that for quite a number of years and it was, it was exciting, but it was also, as, as a funeral director, you fall into that realm of, of a community helper, like a, a nurse or a mm-hmm. person that works in palliative care, you know, just helping those families. So, yeah, some, some interesting times. So we, just to be honest, I expected that there might have been more time in between those two careers or whether they were <coughs> contemporaneous happening. No, they're happening side yeah. by side, yeah. Yeah, so... In my head, I thought, I oh, maybe that happened. He was doing this, and then in his late twenties, he was doing that. When you said you were a bit of a rat bag earlier, it sounds to me like that you're pretty good at spotting an opportunity. Kind of because if someone says, "Oh, just something flippant like, oh, we pay people to clean up crime scenes," and then in your head, that's a business opportunity. When you're already working, is that something you already had the ability to pick up on opportunities? When I was at school, I loved school for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I'm extremely dyslexic, but I suppose when you have something that is not quite right, your body overcompensates in in other areas. So I've always been a person who would find a solution to a need fairly quickly. Sometimes, you know, that path to getting to there is is not as straight as what you'd want it to be. But yeah, I'm able to come up with solutions and, and ideas pretty quickly. Because I just know at that age, I wouldn't have been able to figure out how to tie my own shoelaces and you're figuring out how to do multiple things. <laughs> I just looked down at to Josh's shoes and there's still Velcro on them. <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. I didn't want to throw that in there. but I love that he's jumping in on that before. Yeah. <laughs> it's, seriously, it's the first time I've ever seen Velcro thongs. Yeah. <laughs> the first time you've ever seen this someone this pale, I would assume. I, I absolutely love... I'm fascinated with people that, in like inverted commas, have disabilities because yep. I think it just the way their brains work is an amazing, intriguing thing to me. And you're right because you have to, or you automatically think in a different way from everyone else, so it sets you apart yeah. as in a good way rather than it being oh, seen I, I, as a I truly, truly believe that. I think, and some of the people that we call disabilities. I actually think uh, abilities yeah. for other areas because what they do is they they know their strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. and they work to their strengths. And I think people who always work to their strengths, um, I suppose, they, they are more exciting. And, and it doesn't matter if it's a person that maybe in who, who maybe has Down syndrome mm-hmm. that may have some challenging social skills. But then, you know, I've, I remember years ago in Sydney, there was a choir which was made up with every one of the participants was a Down syndrome child and, and Down syndrome adults. And again, you just turn a negative into a positive and the love and the care that, that, that people, you know, within that realm of disability show is, you know, I, I just love it. Um, so again, you know, everybody just needs to, to work to their strengths. Did you recognise that? 
well, A, that you were dyslexic at the time because I'm, I'm not sure whether the science was as conclusive back then as to what was really going on. When you were in the classroom and indoor daily life and you maybe were struggling with something and trying to figure out ways to negotiate that, did you have such a positive outlook on that at the time as um, you seem to now? I think because you couldn't communicate with clear and precise handwriting and because your spelling was absolutely terrible, like seriously, as, as a child and, and to this day, if I'm writing a document, you know, that's why I loved the change in technology with computers and voice recognition and mm-hmm. voice typing and messaging and things like that. My handwriting today is still similar to an inkwell where a chicken has walked across that page. <laughs> <laughs> and there may be one or two chickens, but yeah. um, what, what that does is it you, you utilise other skills. So utilise body language, utilise communication. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, you adapt really quickly. Yeah, I think you've blown out of the water the conception that, you know, being dyslexic or something like that would make you stupid or you, no. you're not intelligent. Incoherent. And, inco- yeah. and it's it's not the case at all. Like I know, I know um, some autistic people, one of my good mates is like on the Asperger type spectrum and I would just dream to have his level of focus, like the way he can hone yep. in on something is amazing. Well, we're not talking about him. I will just throw to a, there is a cool doco called Dating on the Spectrum. And if you want to have a watch of that, like you just get impressed by these people just leaning into themselves yeah. and not aware of anything that, that they're doing is wrong, inverted commas or untoward. So watch that. But what I want to know from you, Rodney, do you think that this, that like you grew up in a funeral home, is such a, just, it's It sounds like it's the plot un- of a TV show. It does. It, it's yeah. a, it sounds like this cool TV show. Were you just desensitised or were all your siblings desensitised to death like no. this or just you? No. So I've, I've got two older sisters and an older brother. Yeah. And for me, it was always very interesting and, and intriguing. Mm-hmm. Um, so my older sister, she's a retired school teacher. My other sister, she has a successful business in Sydney and my brother, he's in a cafe restaurant situation. I, I think I knew at a very, very young age that this was my calling um, and I don't know whether that was just wanting to help people or just part of my personality makeup. I, I, I don't know. But it was also... It was also exciting. Like if I had to work Monday to Friday in a in a desk and power to the people that do it and absolutely love it, but it wasn't for me. Um, so I was meeting different people, not every day, not every week, but every few hours. I was going into locations and situations which were absolutely amazing and absolutely horrific. I was able to travel, but I, I think it was just meeting people from you know, from people who lived and grew up on streets to multi-multi-millionaires and being able to, I suppose, find at least one or two things in common with each of those individuals, which then... And it, and it didn't matter what it was, you know, like you've, I've met people and, and it could be that they like fishing or it could be that they like Maseratis, 
But if you can at least have one or two points, you, you find something that you can have that conversation about. And look, to be rude, sometimes there are bullshit conversations like, oh, you're a really nice guy, but... <laughs> and then there's other people that you just meet and it's like, oh, God, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. Um, and and I think that's that's how, as humans, we, we do. We, we communicate and we discuss, you know, we always tend to gravitate or, or find like-minded people. If it's, I don't know, if it's playing chess or playing golf or owning a Learjet, you know, there's, there's always stuff that, that people are going to want to want to communicate with and, and be, be with. So what did your now lovely wife think about you going from being, because this is not what she signed up for originally. She signed up for someone else. Yeah, gonna she thought was, she was going to have a chef. Yeah, an in-house chef. Um, did she embrace it as well when you went down this route? Um, Serena, so, by so the way. Serena absolutely has nothing to do. Yeah. So we lived on top of funeral homes in Sydney and the Blue Mountains and she was always petrified of, of driving in and there was coffins and hearses and things like that as well. So, But then we had a beautiful, managed a beautiful funeral home up in the Blue Mountains and we re- resided on top of this funeral home. But then when we had children, it was a little bit like that show Six Feet Under. So this <laughs> was kind of like the prelude of, of our life. I was going to ask you life. later if that any of that's realistic. We might just table that for a second because I do want to ask you about that show. <laughs> yeah, well, like Serena would actually walk out the front door onto the footpath and come into the office where she could have just gone through the chapel or the garage area yeah. so she wouldn't connect with that area. But Isabella would walk through, my, my daughter, when she was a little child. If we had a viewing set up, she'd come down to say hello to Daddy, you know, when she was a little kid. And she'd walk past, oh, hello, Mrs Smith, have a nice funeral and keep walking through. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it's, I suppose it's like anything. If if you're a me- mechanic, your, your daughter and your son will go to school with you and, and watch you pull down an engine. And, you know, if you're a funeral director, they watch see shiny hearses. Watch you pull down a body. The mortuary was off limit for the kids. <laughs> Just with Serena, how was that first? Obviously, you had that background, I'm assuming, on, in, yeah. on, in some way. How was that first conversation or series of conversations where you were planning on making that move back into the industry? Um, well, when I first met her, I was on a working holiday with a mate around Australia and um, we were up in, I was working at the time up in Cairns at a massive big nightclub that used to be up there called the Playpen. And, oh, I love it already. <laughs> yeah, and so the playpen was, I mean, huge. This this place, so all of the big international acts that ever came to Australia, because we were on the Great Barrier Reef, because we were in Cairns, they would do their tour around Australia and they'd do their tour around New Zealand and then they'd come and do like one or two gigs at the playpen mm-hmm. and then go off to the Great Barrier Reef for a week or a few days and stuff like that. So, again, got to meet amazing people. Um, so I, I leased a little cafe and a um, like a backpackers restaurant type thing. So, but then you would always provide food for the bands and nibblies and stuff like that as well. So, like back then, it was you know Dire Straits and and Pink Floyd and all of those guys that would come through. So you got to to meet those guys, which was phenomenal. But when Serena, sorry, and I my met, heart almost just stopped. <laughs> so you said you you we, we may need to talk about meeting Pink Floyd because, yeah, I'm not going to be able to think about that unless I put that out there now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but yeah. my dream then was actually to have a, a restaurant at Palm Beach because Palm Beach just north of Cairns was, was amazing. It was kind of like this was, again, around 1988, just starting to develop and, you know, I'd 
picked out a location. It was going to be Sands and stuff like that. So poor Serena, she she got mixed up in the dream of having a restaurant overlooking Palm Beach, <laughs> and then ended up on living on top of funeral homes in Sydney. So <laughs> so she really lost out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> Definitely not why you signed up. You were just you just continuously reinforce the margins are this much in funeral homes. They're about this much in, in restaurants, restaurants yeah. if anything. Yeah, and the margins in funeral homes are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so just before we get Josh loves music and do you wanna just ask him? Well, about Pink I'm also Floyd? I love seventies progressive rock bands. So can you did you do you remember anything specific? Well, meeting any band that might, people might have heard of, but Pink Floyd specifically, did they anything stand out? Well, the thing about it is, apart from knowing their music, I, I wasn't then right in, into music. You know, for, for me, it was party, party, party. But you, I, I don't know, they were, the, there was that many bands that came through. It was just another band, but it was highlighted because they had a higher profile. You know, like, for example, if you, if you look at the Australian rock scene, like Jimmy Barnes had come on and they were in these bad days that you'd give him a, a steak, chips and veg and a bottle of vodka and half the steak would be eaten, but the vodka was gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was like... Standard behaviour. E- exactly. Yeah. Um, but the other thing as well, you know, they got, at the end of the tour, those bands that came up, Obviously, they'd jump on stage and their persona would just take over and they would play to the hardest. But then you, you would see them that they were done, you know, like by the time they'd finished yeah. travelling and they were now ready ready for a holiday. And I think that's one of the things that I really enjoyed it. When they were ready for a holiday, they were actually ready to communicate and talk and, and just chat. But, yeah, I, I don't know. There was – you would just talk about normal things. You know, they, people – a lot of famous people just want normality in their life and that's kind of like what, what I found when I was meeting these people. I feel like you're the sort of person, and this is I think why I align with you, that everyone just deserves the same level of courtesy. No matter where your social stature is, yeah. you treat everyone the same unless they've given you a reason not to, well, basically. Well, there's two people in life, and I, and I often say this, and I don't know if you can keep this on the recording, but, you know, you're either a nice person or you're a dick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yep. And and if you're a dick, you don't you don't want to be around them. Yeah. And that's that's me. If 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 you, you know, I'm sure there's people that may loathe me. There's may people that love me. But I just hope you know there's more people that love me than loathe me. And I, and I think that's one of the perspectives you've got to have in life. Yeah. It's not about stature, what you can pay for or not pay for. Well, now that we've gone down this little route of famous people that you've known, how did your business evolve to? putting on some pretty grand funerals when you finally got into that Yeah. Um, it, one of the things when I first started, I, I started funeral directing with a company called Kenneth Mora. And so there was Ken and his wife, Antonia, and um, their their children. They were around the same age as myself. But they, they just, they were very well connected within the Catholic Church. So when different celebrities or state funerals would take place, um, sometimes those recommendations would come through the the church. Sometimes they would come through just connections, you know, industry connections, at, well, not so much industry connections, but personal connections that they had. I, su- I suppose we did the top end of town, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. when, it, when it came to funeral services. For example, when Fred Hollows passed, um, oh, wow. we, we um, assisted with the funeral of Fred Hollows. I was one of his pallbearers. But then it was really... Crazy. Fred Hollows was a known communist. 
as such. You know, like he was he was out there, um, loved socialism, mm-hmm. um, but again, an amazing healer, an amazing connector to community and and people who who needed assistance or couldn't provide, and that that was based on part of his socialism skills. But then the Catholic Church was involved, so therefore it, it had to then be a service in the cathedral. Mm-hmm. So. Underneath the, the cathedral in Sydney, there is um, an area where all the cardinals are buried. So there's a beautiful big crypt. It's solid, you know, Sydney sandstone. It's it's beautiful, beautiful building. So the coffin was actually placed into the cathedral before the, the funeral service took place so people could pay their respects and say goodbye. But it was uh, on Fred's request that there was also a bottle of scotch there so whilst the coffin was down there, it didn't matter who was in that room, and I, I mean, it didn't matter who was in the room. Everybody had to have a squig out of this bottle of scotch. <laughs> um, so you know, like there's there's things that go on behind the scenes that people know nothing about. But then there's been other situations um, where Sydney had gone through different crime scenes um, with psychotic murders as such. There was the Granny Killers, which is in the I think the late nineties. And then we assisted a few of the families that that their their grandparents had been murdered, and he, this this guy actually had a fixation on his mother-in-law or mother, and then victim um, targeted his victims based on on his mother or mother-in-law. So he was quite brutal. His 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 choice of weapon was a hammer. So unfortunately, those those people received serious serious injuries. So you're doing at times a job that carries. A massive amount of expectation, even for the most regular everyday person, but also at, at times under a massive amount of media scrutiny oh. and just a whirlwind of it could be, you know, anything from the media to if the person has a level of celebrity beyond, you know, their industry, they might just be an outright celebrity that, or just someone that's had a huge impact, like Fred yeah. Hollows. Like, what's it like to manage something that's intimately personal to a small group of people in a way like the family but also carry all that extra stuff i think i think when you're arranging a funeral service it's so so important to allow the family to be able to farewell their loved one in a way that's appropriate to them even though sometimes there's so much community pressure it still has to be okay so a a celebrity or someone with high community stature has an expectation from the community. But that's only one element of their life. Being a father and a grandfather and a husband or a partner is 80% of, of, of a person's makeup and that other area. So it's still really, really important to allow the community to perceive that this is actually happening for them, but it's still exactly so what the family wants to be. You've answered that amazingly, but I guess just to go a bit deeper, do you guys in your profession, do you act as that, not a protector, but are you the person uh, that will actually guard what, what the family wants and keep that as the focus? And uh, very much so. A, a situation was um, the death of Michael Hutchins in Sydney, and I know Mel and I, we touched on this, you know, previously. So when Michael had passed away, I was, the funeral home was contacted Um so the funeral home that I was operations manager at the time was located in Bondi Junction and and Michael's dad, uh, Cal Hutchins, lived in Wallara. So it's close proximity. Um, so I was then requested to 
um, arrange and conduct Michael's funeral service when when he passed. So, touching on on what you were saying is, yeah, there was there was national media, there was international media, there was a lot of things. You know, like we we had actually been offered money for photos of of yeah. Michael. It, you know, so we people are they're the dicks. Those people. Well, yeah. Well, then you had to employ security guards because could you really trust everybody that you knew? to make sure that something didn't go out because then that would just be, you know, horrendous for, for the business. But then do you trust the security guards because these are people that you don't know but you have to bring in. So it was a real mixture. But that, that um, time for making arrangements for Michael was extremely difficult because he had a solicitor that we needed who was his executor that we couldn't overly communicate and contact with, make contact with. So we had to deal with his brother and then we had to deal with um, Paula Yates and her mental state at the, at the time. Not only did we have to deal with Michael's family and they were um, amazing, you know, like we met with them um, at a hotel in Double Bay and arranged the, the funeral service and they were still grieving the, the loss of their, their son and brother but their family had also... You know, there was there's two sides to the family because Kel and um, his first wife, Michael's mum, uh, Patricia, had actually separated a long time ago. So there was two amazing families that w- were there for the same purpose of of paying, you know, Thanksgiving for for Michael and the reflection of you know like an amazing life for me. You know, in excess, growing up in the eighties was was my band, and there still probably is. You know, my wedding song with with Serena was "Never Tear Us Apart" and all of those type of things wow. as well. So now all of this stuff had happened, and so sorry, I just really need to just ask you one thing, then, Rodney, just from what you just said, did you ever think that maybe because of that connection you have to them, him as a musician and them as a band, that maybe you weren't the right person to do it? Um, or did no. you see it as a privilege? I mean, yeah, no, be, yeah. I think as, as a funeral director, the the highest honour and privilege you can actually pay to a person is, is sending them out of this world um, in the most dignified and, and a proud thing. So no, it was it was an honour, but it's just it's an honour to help. You know, people say I've, a lot of people have said, you know, like oh, it's amazing. You know, you've done amazing funerals, you know, you did Michael Archon's funerals, you know, you've done Fred, been assisted with Fred Hollow's funerals and, and all these other people, state funerals. But there's still a few funerals that you take home the experience more. There was a, a lady who was in her late 80s and no one actually turned up for her funeral. And still to this day it saddens me. So there was myself another another two staff members at the funeral home and a clergy and... Um, so to live in this world and to, to be on this earth for that many years, to have, I suppose, no one connect with you to, to, to bother to, to at least say goodbye to you, I think that's, that's sadder. The strongest person I've ever met in my life, and, and I've met people from all walks of life, is I was arranging, I was sitting in the funeral home one day and a, a lady came in and she said, oh, look, I need to make funeral arrangements. Sure, come in, you know going through the questions, doing all the necessary paperwork. And um, and she said, look, I've lost my baby. And I was like, I'm so, so sorry. You know, it's, I, I can't imagine how, how you're feeling, but I'm here to, to help you through this process. And I suppose in a way, the, the easier and the, the better process we can start, we that enables them to transition through the commencement of grief and, and hopefully to, to the healing. And 
going through everything. And I said, oh, you know, whereabouts is your baby? And she said, I'm going into a hospital tomorrow to deliver. And my heart just mm. sank. And she was there by herself. So she had the, the courage to, to be able to do this for, for her child by herself. She didn't have, I don't know if she had support at home. I, I don't know. But, and the thing that I take away from that with regret is I don't remember that lady's name, but she was so, so inspirational for, you know, like I'd, I'd see things happen or some things would happen to you alive. And it's just like, wake up to yourself, remember this situation. And, and, and sometimes it puts your own life into perspective that there's other people who are, are stronger and you, and you can find, you find that inspiration from, from those people. It's amazing. It's just recently I was talking to Mel about a big car accident that I was in probably about 12 years ago now and luckily everyone that was involved in a multi-car pile-up walked away pretty much without a scratch mm. and I'm not sure I would be here all my friends uh, maybe we'd, we'd be okay but the things that happened probably would have went worse for other people involved mm. if this particular truck driver didn't get out and help me yes and I I could draw you a pi- I can't draw but I could draw you a picture of every detail about that man and I do not remember his name yeah yeah and that's but, just but that's a, that's a person that you'll carry with Forever. for life. I mean, and yeah. and I think... He's a was the single bravest thing I've ever <coughs> witnessed in person. Yeah. And I just can't remember his name. It's crazy. Yeah, like <laughs> some, sometimes I, I, you remember certain situations yeah. and you just told your experience and, you know, like the hairs on the back of my neck, yeah. you know, come up. And I, I think that's, you know, the hair coming up on the back of the neck is, is a good... It's is a good little, I suppose, metre of how you want to live your life as well. Like if you were in the situation, you'd probably hope that you would do the same thing. Um, yeah, we, we're amazing makeup, us humans, that's for sure. Sorry, I, I, I know that I've kind of derailed us a little bit there, but just with Michael's funeral, yes. we were at the point where you were dealing with both families. Was there, was there anything that either side of the family was asking of you that maybe added any conflict to that day or any extra complication or were they both both on board with executing, I guess, a, a funeral that had so much outside pressure and internal in the same way? It Again, it wasn't so much what the family wanted because they were, even though there was, I suppose, their family was split but they were fairly, fairly united. Yep. There was obviously connection with the band like one of the weirdest things I've ever had to do is the band was just about to embark on a a world tour and they had been practicing at the ABC studios so they they were the guys were just shell-shocked the the guys from in excess and I they were going to be the pallbearers for Michael's casket out of St Andrew's Cathedral so I had to go over. So we we arranged with the props department from the ABC to have a coffin into where the where Inisex were um, were practicing, and I wouldn't say practicing because they were absolute legends at their craft, but where they were rehearsing, getting ready for for the commencement of their tour, and um, so we actually had to go through how they would carry the coffin. And, you know, we're in a warehouse or an amazing big film studio type thing at ABC and you've, you've got the guys from In Excess who, as a kid growing up, were your idols and you're, you're teaching them how to carry an empty coffin which in a few days' time is going to have their, their best mate in it. Um, so that was quite a surreal moment and uh, I actually met one of the guys from In Excess at, at an event a few 
few years later and I introduced myself and uh, even he said uh, that was like mentally and physically one of the most effed up things that he had ever had to do um, and because they were there by themselves and, you know, I suppose they just, you know, when, when, when you, I, I would assume, um, but when you're that close with those guys, you know, that you've grown up and, and toured the world with and it's not as if you work for a company and you have an office here and an office there, they lived each other's lives. Um, so that that was pretty amazing. But then, you know, the, the going through for the arrangements um, of the funeral as well, obviously the family wanted a, a casket that was going to be um, fitting of, of Michael's, I suppose, stature. So they, they chose quite an elaborate casket, but Michael loved um, irises. So the coffin was adorned with irises. And because Michael's daughter was tiger lily, I'd suggested that we have one tiger lily in, in the flowers. So... Yeah, so they, they loved that suggestion. So there was that one bit of symbolism with the tiger lily flower for, for his daughter as well. And she was just a little little baby and she was a cute, gorgeous little thing. I don't know, she'd be, she'd be an adult by now. There's such a sense of responsibility that comes with a job yeah. like that. The or- media was pretty big. And then obviously because the funeral was beamed around the world, you know, meeting with guys like Richard Wil- Wilkins, um, uh, Michael Chug um, from Chug Entertainment, um, mm-hmm. you know, organising you know, thirty odd limousines and wow. having the police, New South Wales Police Department, deal with them to literally lock down the centre of Sydney, and then go through traffic coordination. So you have green lights going out of the city, out of the city. But then the other thing as well is the family wanted to have the final stage of the funeral service, which was a cremation at um, Northern Suburbs Crematorium. They wanted that to be private, so we actually um, had booked Michael's funeral in under a false name, so people wouldn't know um, where it was. So okay. uh, even even the staff at the crematorium, apart from from the manager and one other person, didn't realise that Michael Hutchins' was funeral was taking place that day. So they the family just wanted when they arrived there, they wanted to be like any other family. Mm-hmm. What else is even just for me mind blowing that you can coordinate traffic lights to be all green on the way out. Like that's not even anything that would have even popped into my head as a realm of what you need to think about when putting something on of that magnitude. So I I don't know, it's an insignificant little detail or very significant because stuff can go the wrong. Although I did did have an amazing experience afterwards. So we, we were invited back to what was a nightclub in Sydney at the time, the Blue Room, and that's where the wake for Michael was held and there was... You know anyone and everyone from the funeral industry and Michael's family, and there had been a lady who was quite constant because we had a a lot of viewings of mm-hmm. Michael with family members and close friends, and there was a lady who was quite constant. I didn't know uh, who she was. I just thought she was a, a friend. Anyway, so we got chatting because she was so approachable. But then after the funeral service, she tended to be by herself and we ended up just chatting away and I was with um, Marcella Belcastro, sorry, Marcella Belcastro who uh, had been assisting me with um, the arrangements and um, it was Bono's wife. So it was just, and she, again, she was just normal and lovely and she said, oh, you know, next time in Sydney we should actually catch up. I'm going, ooh, I think I'd like to catch up with Bono. (laughs) That'd be really cool. (laughs) Wow, that's incredible. Wow. So I guess just to bring things back into this region, yeah. if it's okay, Rodney, and talking, Mel brought up a sense of responsibility. 
you've recently been involved in a project that's both iconic but also has a sensitivity to it around here and an importance involving the war memorial. Yes, uh, yep. That I'm not sure, I mean, I knew that things were happening there, but I honestly had no concept of how and who and, like, I mean, just how that came to be. So can we talk through maybe what is actually going on, what you've done and how you did that? Yep. Yeah, because you're doing something slightly different now. Yeah, Yeah. so around 10 years ago, I actually changed from funeral directing and cemetery management. I was actually at a, a conference and um, there were some people who were in the death care industry, but in regards to the memorialisation side. And I was speaking at the conference and ended up on the same table. So in a, in a nutshell, 10 years later, I've, I'm CEO of their company and, and we are a company that designs cemeteries worldwide. We um, manufacture a bronze plaque, statuary, memorialisation. And one of the recent projects we've completed is the brass memorialisation of Aubrey service personnel who uh, were in World War One. So the Aubrey City Council and the, I think it was the state government or federal government, there was a plan with um, the Aubrey RSL and Aubrey City to redesign and revamp the Aubrey War Memorial, which is probably, I truly believe, in the top 10 memorials within Australia. Wow. And that Christ. that is, if you take into consideration the Australian War Memorial, the Vietnam Service Memorial, the HMAS Sydney at Geraldton, which is, if anyone's in Western Australia, you, you have to go. It's just stunning. But these are, are memorials that have been funded by government and stuff like that, where the Aubrey War Memorial is actually originally funded by community. So the community would donate and, and they built this memorial, which basically looks over not only Aubrey Wodonga, but our, our region. It, it's the highest point it's seen everywhere. So... People we, would know it as Monument Hill. Monument Hill. Yeah, if they're not attached yeah. to the details around it. Yeah, so it was a project that, that took two years. Um, the architectural design, the, the Aubrey War Memorial, is Art Deco. So the, there's a gentleman that worked or works for Aubrey City Council by the name of Andrew Glenn who did the redesign work of, of the alcoves and everything like that. But then what we had to do is we had to recognise every theatre of war, every conflict. We had to recognise Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander uh, service personnel and the names of those uh, locals that were um, had paid the ultimate sacrifice during World War One. Yeah, so the, the project was completed recently and if anybody who lives in the Orudonga area, please go up at sunrise or sunset because it is phenomenal watching either the sunset in the in the west or that sunrise coming over the, the mountains in, in the east and then hitting the war memorial. And um, I suppose all the plaques are, are, um, are, are lit up. So it just it just looks beautiful. Like it, it's, it pays respect to those, um, but it also pays respect to those that in every other conflict sense has helped, you know, protect this great nation of ours. Are you very proud to have been able to do something that where you're from that is so significant? Yeah, yeah. So this is this is a, an amazing project. We've also um, been involved in in front of the locals will know Pids Nursery. Mm -hmm. So uh, we designed the memorial for Albert Barella, VC. So there was a, a great Australian sculptor by the name of um, Michael Smiths who actually did the sculpture, mm -hmm. um, but all the bronze plaque, the, the casting of the large 
Victoria Cross and the the design elements of that. So that that was also another, you know, quite a proud moment. And and for me, in recognition of my grandfather, there isn't higher higher honour than than doing something for service personnel. So we've been involved with there's 101 Victoria Cross recipients, but we've been involved in 11 of the memorials for those VCs. So again, there, there isn't a higher honour in Australia, I believe, than than a, being awarded a Victoria Cross. My great grandfather. Got a Victoria Cross. Are you serious? Yeah. I probably need to do a bit more research in that so you can maybe, yeah, Vernon Fraser. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So, we're, like, we, we were involved with the, the three statues of Victoria Cross recipients down at Yaroa, so Tub, Magar and Burton. So that was pretty much the launch of the um, centenary of Anzac. Um, they, those statues were unveiled right at the beginning of, of that centenary remembrance. But it's it's amazing to be, um, I suppose, associated with these really big projects. But it's just as important to be able to make something beautiful for a family that's paying recognition to their their son or their daughter or their husband or their wife or grandparents and things like that as well. Because uh, for, for me, if if we do our job right, and the cemetery does their job right, if 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 the family drives out of that gate thinking that I'm really glad that I've left my loved one within this area or within this garden, we've we've done our job right. Very, everyone's story is significant to them, 100%, isn't it? So. 100%. And we're also different, you know, like, you know, Mel, the, the, the connection that you have with your loved ones and the connection I have with my loved ones, and it, we, we all, we're very similar, but we're all so different as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a question for you. What is your favourite cemetery that you've ever been to? I know this could seem like a morbid one, but I have a favourite that just... Yeah. Um, there's, I don't think there's a favourite one, but only because there's some that have just amazing elements. So if mm-hmm. you're... I don't know if people are aware of the, the coastal walk between Bondi and Bronte mm-hmm. in Sydney. It's amazing. So if ever you're in Sydney, go for this walk and walk along the coastline. Uh, so Waverley Cemetery is a cemetery which overlooks um, the ocean and it is just full of architecture and history of of early Sydney. What people don't realise is that most of the original cities, um, cemeteries in Sydney, have been relocated. So, for example, Sydney's first cemetery was around the area of QVB um, Shopping Centre. So that, that cemetery was dug up and relocated out to Rookwood. Wow. Albury's first cemetery was, I'm not quite sure if um, Waits Park, where the kids play Auskick on a a Sunday. So that was Albury's first cemetery. But because of the Murray River and no mitigation and no wall, it used to flood. So they then exhumed the bodies and moved them to the Pioneer Cemetery in Albury. Like old Uh, Tulangata. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, you know, the, the history of moving bodies to create new cemeteries or new necropoli- necropolises is is not new. Um, Have you been part in, in part of one of those moving? Yeah, yeah. So, what, uh, what's the resistance you get from families with that? Well, is there for a- years and years, the federal government said the airport was not going to take place at Badgerys Creek. 30 years ago, we moved probably about 40 bodies from the Badgerys Creek Cemetery into little churchyard cemeteries around Western Sydney when I lived there. And um, obviously the, the airport wasn't going in Badgerys Creek, yeah. but there was all of a sudden a need to move all these bodies out of the cemetery where, by chance, the airport is being built today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, 
it's 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 quite common, and and then obviously there there's been cases where either through family cho- choice or through coronial investigations where exhumations have had to take place. Um, so I've been involved with a, a lot of exhumations and relocation of bodies. Yeah, well, so my favourite cemetery that I've ever been to is one in Paris yeah. where James Morrison yes. um, is buried. I don't even know what it's called, but I just... And to be honest, his, um, his grave site was not impressive to no. me at all, but the magnitude and the history of that space mm. was just amazing. I could spend hours in there. The trees were magnificent. There was so much history steeped in that area yeah. that I could have just wandered, not in a morbid way at all, just impressed yeah. by by the magnitude of it. And it was just this beautiful, beautiful place. Probably one of the most amazing cemeteries I've been to was in Shanghai in China. It's a cemetery called Bamboo and it is just opulence. Over, in overdrive, I don't know the the amount of money that that people will spend on memorialisation. I've personally been involved with graves for over a million dollars, where families have, have chosen that. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's 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 strange how people will either want to have something extremely simple or something, you know, over the top. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you are the expert, but it is a, it, it is a way as long as it's executed to the person's personality or taste. It's a way to immortalise, in a way, what is most real about yeah. someone or a family. I was I was in an amazing cemetery only a few weeks ago. So when, during COVID, obviously New South Wales was locked down and then the South Australian border um, became open and I had finished my client meetings and because there really wasn't that much to, to bring me home work-wise apart from my family. Um, so I actually rang Serena. I said, look, have, have we got much on? And, and she said, not really. And I said, well, I'm turning left. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm going to drive up to Darwin. I'll see you in two and a half weeks. But so we have obviously clients that are in the Northern Territory in South Australia. And and there was, I was literally going on this this main arterial road between somewhere. Um, I, I think it was up near, oh, it was right up in Northern Territory. And there was a science cemetery. So I thought, I'll drive down this this road and have a look. And you're aware of the movie and the the writings of We of the Never Never. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this was actually the Never Never Cemetery in the Northern Territory. And there was probably only, I don't know, maybe 50 people buried in this cemetery, but the headstones depicted who they are, where they came from, how they passed... Um, you know, and, and I think one of the things that even though that I'm in this industry and, and we get requests and we do it every day, it's it's John Citizen, born, died, loving husband, loving wife, bang, 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 and that's it. I, I love it when you can actually see part of the story or you get a picture of the individual purely by what's on yeah. what's mentioned on the headstone. Um, and, you know, there was one of the ladies that had travelled up with family and, and, you know, this is the most harshest environment but it isn't 2021 yeah. it's 1880 type thing or, mm-hmm. or or you know the you know 150 years ago you know horseback and no shelters and you know the outback heats and and just reading their stories and and getting a picture of i suppose the the lifestyle or the struggle that these people have and and i think that's what memorialization 
is or should be about it. It should be able to give you a snapshot of that in, individual's life and just not just a, a name. It, it should be able to, you know, tell you a little bit or give you an insight into that person's life. I really like that. Yeah. I like that. And on that note, I'm going to be heading up north, which when I say north, I mean up to the top of Monument Hill, either at sunset or at sunrise if I can get out of bed early enough to appreciate it because Nom- I have... Nominate the day and I have a nice coffee waiting for you. Oh, there you go. We, we might do a little group expedition up there and Josh, I'll have a whiskey for you. Right, <laughs> I'm a Jamison drinker. Okay. I rediscovered that the other night after a decade of leaving it alone. So. <laughs> oh, really? Well, choose a date in the future, Mel, sometime. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually, do you know what? I would love it if you could explain it all to me up there. Yeah. So I'm going to lock that in. Well, the the thing about the, the process that the RSL did and they were the president of Aubrey RSL, Graham Doxic, was heavily involved with, the story on the plaques, mm-hmm. you, you don't have to research it because it actually tells you. And that, yeah. that's one of the things about um, why it's such a great memorial, not only to those that paid the ultimate sacrifice, but to those who served in wartime and peacetime. And um, at the unveiling of the, the plaques and the, the rededication of the memorial, one of the things that was mentioned is that there's two alcoves that have been set aside. Mm-hmm. And one is obviously for the current conflict at, at Afghanistan because even though the, the majority of the work has been done, it's still operational. So, mm-hmm. And then there's the, the 15th alcove and... It was mentioned on the day that hopefully a plaque will never be placed in there because hopefully there'll never be another conflict and wow. let's let's just hope that, that that actually takes place and, and that we don't have to be involved in, in war. Oh, having to foresight potential need for plaques, yeah, that's... It's pretty heavy. Very, very heavy. Oh, thank you so much. That was so interesting. I'm so glad I got to meet you and I'm very fortunate that Punching Sideways has been a really cool way for me to connect with people because if I hadn't have met Bernie and become the sex at the fashion show, I wouldn't have met you and we wouldn't have been able to hear this amazing story and all this cool stuff. Well, I'm looking at it, it's cool because it's fascinating to me. You've given us an insight into something that I never would have been able to delve into otherwise. Many things to know. Yeah, more than welcome and thanks for having me here. I think... uh, it's it's great to, I suppose, share a little bit of a part of me and a little bit of my story. But again, you know, I think everyone has a story and uh, all those stories should be told and recorded and people made it. So good good luck to uh, Punching Sideways. Uh, anyone who is going to come on board and, and speak with you, it's... They're crazy guys, but they're fun guys, and, and, and it's a great experience. So, oh, that's a yeah. what a lovely nice sentiment. It feels like a like my funeral speech. He sounds like he wants the hero edit there. Dearly <laughs> beloved, we have been gathered here today with Mel and Josh. Yes, <laughs> thank you, Rodney. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mel. Whoa! Yeah, that was pretty amazing. <sighs> I think he just. Drops names like Skittles on the ground. He did. Just like far out. Um, you got a little bit emotional there when he was recounting like his impressive person story and you shared a little bit about that car crash that you and Rudy and Dan Caulfield were involved in. Did his emotion attach to that impressive lady sort of tweak something in you? I think so. And it's something I've always kind of, had some regret around and never had, 
I guess I never had a channel to articulate it until Rodney today told the story about that amazing woman and how she dealt with her grief at the time and was so brave about all of it. But he still had that little twinge of regret that something that in retrospect is really important. He didn't take the time or he didn't have the foresight to think I'd love to know the name. That's how it just... I know, just instantly the whole story again played out in my head of, oh, I've got that person in my life that I wish I just had a name for. Did that make you feel more okay about it? It did. Yeah. Because seeing someone else speak so positively about somebody like that and have so many, I guess, really concrete memories mm-hmm. without knowing the name made me feel a little bit more okay with it. You know how sometimes when someone else externalises something you've been through you get clarity on it that you never had before. Yeah. That's how I felt. I felt that about a lot of things throughout today. <sighs> Tell me your just favourite. Like there's just so many things that were just blowing my mind and I know this sounds really bizarre, but the fact that you coordinate traffic lights. Yeah, that was. To, to for a funeral pr- procession for someone important? Like that wouldn't have even came into my mind as a thing. Yeah. The fact is even within the purview of yeah. a funeral director to have to even be thinking about yeah. that sort of stuff kind of blew my mind too. Well, it's, yeah. This, I mean, there's many fun facts to have taken away from today, but that was an amazing magnitude of the level of detail that has to go into something like that. And you, I don't know, we got a very articulate professional storyteller in front of us, but he's a bit of a larrikin, isn't he, off mic? It was high last per minute, to use the comedian phrase, like from the time he got here. Yeah. Just jokes, one-liners and sledging. Yeah. It was, yeah, high high octane, and as soon as we got off the mic, but as I think I might have mentioned afterwards, those two things don't seem incongruent for Rodney. It seems like he's all of those things equally, and it's just, well, a, a master of picking the right words at the right time. Yeah, it was, um, I'm very glad I produced well. I'm just going to This might be a your, although I really loved an upcoming conversation that we've actually previously recorded. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a gentleman that came in the other day and I won't give it away who it was. Or, yeah. Yeah, but that was, that blew me away. But today was right up there as well. And um, Josh, we need to organise a, a coffee date with Rodney to go and check out the memorial up the hill because now that he's talked about it in such a profound way and how much it actually means to this area or even to Australia, actually, I think a lot of the time we can get caught up in how privileged we are that we don't actually reflect on the great things that we have in this region. And um, he's travelled all over the world and Monument Hill with with the parks and everything up there is one of the most significant things that he's been part of. So yeah, yeah that, that was huge. Up. That was probably one of many moments where I was a little speechless for once, <laughs> to be honest, but that was one where he said it's in the top 10 yeah. most either important or impressive. I can't remember the word that he used. It, it probably doesn't matter. It's both. But yeah. yeah, in the top 10 in the country, yeah, it's just mind-boggling really. <laughs> and it, it overlooks us all. I mean, you can see it. Everywhere. Straight out my window, really. Everywhere. I have a different identity to it usually um, is that like it's usually a hard trek to walk up and it's usually part of a gruelling pre-season at football or something like that. Some kind of boot camp. Yeah, pretty much. But 
I mean, what a reward when you get to the top. So if you're at home like around Christmas time or you're listening to this now and put it in your book and go and have a bit of a look-see. And just to maybe finish up today, you mentioned a great-grandfather. Oh, yeah. That <laughs> just one to Victoria, is it Victoria Cross? That he- yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to research it. Burnham Fraser. So he doesn't have like a whole statue or anything made. Um, the old, I think it was, it's like, it's not the RSL Hall, but it's something at Tulangata has like the Burnham Fraser shed. It's not a shed. I remember going to the opening of it and um, there's a park and everything there. And his cross is, there's not much written about him in Canberra. It was a bit of a, but I do remember him. Can I, can I share this? Go for it. He, I was the only um, great grandchild that was privileged enough to actually spend time with him. My brother was born just before he died, but he was too young. And he was a real innovator. He used to be a sniper. And um, one of the tricks he had was standing up and bending down and shooting a gun between his legs and shooting a matchstick. Like from a fire. But um, he spent most of his time uh, in a wheelchair and he organised all this wheelchair and everything like that. So it had like a hoe on it. It had all the tools like a farmer would have on his thing. And him and I would pelt up the road. So even just under five, I would push him full pelt up the driveway backwards and forwards and we'd get in trouble because we were, you know, being idiots. And he'd organised all these um, hung from his veranda, all these ropes so he could swing around quickly. And he, before grabbers were a thing, you know, those claw things, he'd made them so that he could pick things up really easily. He was a really impressive dude, but I didn't hear and no one really heard much about the war because it was such a, you know, non-spoken about time, but he was a sniper and even after he got injured, they called him back to, he was put up in planes and that to, to show people where to go and everything like that, even when he was injured. So he had to go back again. Yeah. Impressive dude. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. And I'd love to know more about him in the future if, <laughs> you, if you can find anything else. Well, yeah, yeah. I probably should. Like, you're just sort of one of those things that you just got brain tweaked. You was talking about how important that is and maybe I need to be a bit better. So you, you kind of had an, a similar moment, different, but a, someone else is talking about a person or a thing and you're like, I think you have a close connection to something in your life. Yeah, I knew him as... Like a cool dude, not as, you know, an ex-war hero or anything like that. The things that I remember about him are that, like, he had these weird and outlandish, crazy inventions everywhere. And even as a young child, like, he was, he'd passed away before I was, like, six, I think. But I got to spend a lot of time with him and he just had this fascinating brain, which, yeah... As that's now, now that we're talking about it, has is something that I've continued to be fascinated by people that think differently. So it's definitely true about you. (laughs) So I guess if you would like to help us keep thinking differently, we we need a couple of coffees to keep this pirate ship afloating. So you can go to punchingsideways.com and click on the buy me a coffee button. Mm -hmm. We really appreciate that. And I'm not sure if I mentioned in the intro, we've been getting lots of feedback recently from different people and it's really appreciated because that kind of, that's extra energy beyond the coffees. So Yeah. I mean, coffee's helpful, but it is nice to hear that we're 
affecting you guys maybe in a positive way or just making your time pass a bit quicker. And apparently our voices sound really nice. Yeah. <laughs> Almost the set in voices. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And I'm about that because I was always told growing up that I've got a terrible squeaky voice. Well, that's not true. Yeah. So. You're... It, I don't even have to do that much work on it, to be honest. I was going to say it's a lot of work, but it's actually not. So good on you. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Righto, thanks, guys, for listening. Thanks, Rodney, for being amazing. Yes. Uh, I actually kind of probably did the gentle nudge that I'd love to have him back on. I wouldn't you normally do that. You were a fangirly. Yeah, I wanted to be fangirly. You're like, oh, you're always welcome back here again. Yeah, yeah, that was probably a bit much. Righto, thanks, Mel. <laughs>